Diary, the summer edition. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. This show is produced on Treaty 7 land for CJSW 90.9 FM. Rave Dad's Diary, the summer edition, features rebroadcasts of fan-favorite episodes from Season 1, as well as some special guests and features from my favorite journalists and podcast hosts. Listen to Season 1 of Rave Dad's Diary on demand via Apple Podcasts and CJSW.com. Today, we're going to hear an episode of Sanctuary Radio, a podcast about harm reduction and safer partying created and hosted by Stacy Marie. You can hear all episodes of Sanctuary Radio via the Base Coast Festival SoundCloud page or by clicking the link in the bio on the show's Instagram page. Follow Sanctuary Radio and check out some of Stacy's fun and educational graphic design work at sanctuary underscore radio. Hello, angels. Thank you for stopping by the sanctuary here on Tastemakers. If this is your first time here, or you've got that foggy pandemic brain and have forgotten, my name is Stacy Marie. Every Wednesday here on The Rewind, we hang out, we talk about stuff related to safer partying, we listen to music, we learn some stuff. Well, I learn some stuff. I hope you do too. So it's April, and April marks Sexual Assaults Awareness Month. Now, if you go to festivals, you go to clubs, you interact with nightlife, this is a topic I encourage you to engage with, not just this month, but all the time, because we all have a role to play in creating safer nightlife. My guests today do just that. Will and Eric are from Outsmart NYC. I will let them explain what they do, but the short version is this. Outsmart NYC aims to prevent sexual violence and encourage healthy relationships in the nightlife industry. And they do this through training, advocacy, community organizing, and referrals to supportive services. I appreciate Eric and Will and their work so much. We are literally on opposite ends of the continent, yet I've been fortunate enough to work alongside them or present alongside them a couple of times now. And I just adore sharing space with both of them. A few things about today's episode. I mentioned a project, Good Night Out, and I haven't really talked about Good Night Out on here before. Whoops. Um, I started the show to talk about other people's projects, not my own. Uh, but Good Night Out Vancouver works with venues and artists to address sexual violence as well. I will link our Instagram in the post for this episode. Look us up. We do some cool stuff. What else do I want to tell you before we start? Although this episode mostly talks about prevention and being proactive, there are some moments where we talk specifically about sexual violence. About 35 minutes-ish into the episode, we briefly discuss an incident of gender-based violence that recently took place in the UK. So a little heads up about that. Ultimately, I see the work of Will and Eric and the way they approach it and the way they talk about it truly as a love letter to nightlife. It's the naming and the appreciating and the seeking more of the joy and connection and less of the things that make folks feel unsafe. So let's get into it. But first, I have this track from Cartel Madras bringing that Canadian content into the sanctuary today. (laughs) 
Well, I thought that we could maybe start with just introductions, both of yourself individually, and I would love to hear a bit about Outsmart NYC and your work and kind of what it means as the world is reopening. Yeah, tell us more. Um, I can start. My name is Will Stolarski. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Um, by trade, I'm, I'm actually, I work for a media agency and that's, that's kind of what I do most of the time. But I've been doing work with Outsmart for the past few years. In college, I started doing consent trainings and bystander intervention trainings. And at the same time, I, I really started getting more involved in, in electronic music and dance music and, and, and that sort of thing. Then after, after I graduated, I, I moved to New York City um, and was going out every weekend. And, you know, it, it kind of just was a natural pairing of my two interests and two passions that I felt the need to, to work on violence and nightlife. Um, it, it's just, it's such a, a clear issue. Um, I think anyone who, who is active in nightlife understands that. And I, I, but I also find, especially as it relates to electronic music, like there is already such a foundation, especially in the festival community uh, of like of care and taking care of each other um, and mm-hmm. like finding ways to support each other, largely as it, as it relates to drugs. Um, but I, I was really interested in trying to, to, to make that connection around if we could have people really think about what it means to take care of each other in, in a, in like a physical intimacy context, what, what would that look like? 
which led me to to meet Eric, who will introduce himself in a second. Um, but we basic I can give a, a basic rundown of OutSmart. We train venue staff around bystander intervention tactic, around what affirmative consent means in a in a nightlife context, and and really try to provide them with skills and tools and messages that they can use to create safer spaces within their own venues. Um, and, and to think about how different issues, how different relationships of power show up in their very specific context um, and help them navigate that to, to ultimately make the best night out possible. Uh, my name is Eric McGriff. My pronouns are he and his. Uh, and I've been doing violence prevention work for about 12, 13 years. Um, I started actually in high school because I was lucky enough to go to a high school that had a partnership with the Domestic and Sexual Violence Agency. And they had a campaign to engage men in ending violence against women and girls. Um, so, yeah, I worked with uh, a local nonprofit um, in high school. I kept doing this work in college. Um, and then once I graduated, I started working as a prevention educator um, at that nonprofit with my identical twin brother before we both moved down here to New York City. Um, and so I work at a victim service agency. We offer free legal, medical, and therapeutic services to any person impacted by any violent crime at any point in their lives. And I run the prevention program. Uh, so I help coordinate community responses, do a lot of education, training, campaigns, and stuff. And we are one of the parties uh, that creates OutSmart, which is a collective of industry professionals and folks like me uh, who serve as a connect to the free and confidential resources that a lot of survivors need, especially ones uh, who don't have insurance, <laughs> um, like they don't in the U.S. <laughs> or pay time off. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, I'm excited to be here. OutSmart is really great. We have, in addition to our uh, venue training and our sexual violence training, we also offer, like, trauma trainings. So working with managers on how you respond to someone who discloses to you they've been harmed. We're also developing with uh, Rutgers University a, quote, best practices toolkit, which comes with an environmental checklist, which comes with um, a policy checklist. And then it has a bunch of, you know, quote, best practice recommendations um, that, that is going to be put all into a packet that goes with our managerial training uh, for any type of venue that wants to create a safer space uh, for their employees and their patrons. Um, and with that, I will stop. I love how, how you're like, quote, best practices, because I can already see that, like, very much like Good Night Out, that's something we get asked for all the time as if they just exist because people have been doing it for long enough to refine it to best practices. Like, it's such, like... It is really like a colonial thing to look for like this imperialistic best thing to do. And, and, but they are important. And I think if that's what people want, if that's the box we have to put it in to have these conversations, um, then that's what we'll do it. But yeah, I love that. <laughs> so good night out, which is my project up here and outsmart. We have a lot. If there was like a Venn diagram, we would be in huge overlap around, I think, our approach and the communities we work with. Both of our niches really are our nightlife. I think that across Canada and across the U.S., there is a lot of sexual violence prevention programs popping up. But we both operate within that specific corner of that which is nightlife or music and addressing toxic masculinity in those spaces. I, I wanted to kind of clarify for listeners, how might um, toxic masculinity or unsafe situations, how might they look in the specific context of nightlife or, or music or music festivals? I'm going to jump in on this one too, because one thing I didn't say is um, when I was in college, I went to a very big party school. 
Um, it's called Syracuse University, always one of the top 10 in the U.S. And I was president of my fraternity. And we implemented oh a lot of these things into the fraternity because I told them, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. Since high school, if you want me to be a bro, like you have to be okay with me holding you accountable and doing all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we, we definitely did um, a lot of that. And we addressed things like toxic masculinity um, all the time. We got uh, bros trained in bystander intervention and a, quote, evidence-based um, <laughs> curriculum. Um, so like risk managers and everything, we had our uh, sober monitors. We, got, we took them through training where they understood, hey, when you're dancing with someone, you know, and, you know, you think they might be like throwing it back and, you know, they're getting it or whatever, and you pull them closer, that could be a moment that scares someone when they were trying to walk away. Yeah. And we talked about things like inducing like check-ins. It could be you saying, hey, I'm thirsty. Do you want anything? Or saying you need to go to the bathroom, even if you don't, <laughs> right? As a way to give them space and choice. So I, it was really helpful using bystander tips and, you know, a lot of gender-based violence prevention uh, stuff to, to engage men in that space. It is harder, though, to do it in other spaces because I had the leverage of their brother in the relationship to, to get us to do that. Um, so, yeah. I just want mm -hmm. to share that piece. Mm -hmm. I think for me, in, in this context, in the nightlife context, masculinity is, is pretty inseparable from entitlement. Um, it, it, it's the idea that if you put yourself in the right sort of situation, maybe in the right space, then you could get something that you want without any real consideration of what the other person might be interested in. And I, I think there there is this like, this sort of pattern of, of men specifically going out with an objective. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and it's something you'll see a lot, like at, at almost every club that I've ever been to, I can pretty easily identify someone who's there with a certain objective. Yeah. Um, and that's normally a very selfish one. Um, it's not like I want to meet someone. I want to get to know them. I want to hear what they're all about and, and, and like make sure that they're having a great night. It's in many times to be frank, like it's, I want to go out and get laid. Um, and so I think what we try to really understand is un knowing that nightlife will always, as it should, be a place for people to meet and connect and have a good time together. How do we really change the way that people think about interacting with others so that they're not just thinking about themselves, but they're prioritizing other people's agency. They're asking the right questions. They're thinking about how drugs and alcohol complicate consent and really ensuring that both they are having the best time and that everyone around them is. I, I think toxic masculinity really, really complicates that because it, it, is, it is not always about asking questions. It is not always about being vulnerable or honest. It is oftentimes just like succeeding and powering through to, to do what you were set out to do. Um, and like when it comes to being intimate with another person, it's, it's more complicated than that. So that, that's, that's what I would say about toxic masculinity particularly. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think you really nailed it. There's just so many intersections of like, of power that play out in nightlife that are exacerbated particularly by by alcohol like i think obviously alcohol is never ever an excuse the only thing that causes sexual assault is sexual assault but you know one of the side effects of alcohol intoxication is just giving you that myopic vision and you know inability if you're already on a mission to complicate 
the body language needed to effectively interpret consent. And so that combined with like money and of course, whiteness and social status creates kind of like this perfect storm that if there aren't interventions in place, a sliver of people are having a good night instead of, and I think the shared mandate of both of our projects is we don't want to ruin nightlife. I don't know about you too, but like a big misconception is like, we're coming in to like be a buzzkill and take all of the fun things like grinding and hookups and all of those things out of nightlife. And it's like, no, we're called good night out. Like we're not called bad night out. Um, And that's because we want just more people to have a good, a good time. And yeah, for more people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I I think uh, another thing that we've been thinking about a lot recently is what are some of the like ingrained aspects of both nightlife culture, dating culture that are inherently problematic and do kind of play to that power dynamic. So a question we've asked ourselves is like to to speak in like cis-hetero terms, like a guy buys a girl a drink. That's something that that we all accept is very, very normal. But within that, there could be problematic aspects um, as it relates to power, as it relates to consent, that sort of thing. Did she ask for the drink? Did she ask for a specific drink? Did the guy ask what she wanted? Did the guy ask, was it okay? But many times you'll see people, just because it is such like a normalized practice, will say, hey, I got this drink for you as like a show of affection and interest. Also, like, and because we know what, like, the very literal side effects of that, of of alcohol are as it relates to being sexually active and that sort of thing. So it's, there's so many different things that are important to, like, really tease out and investigate. And I think what we're interested in as preventionists is just, like, really leaving no stone unturned when we think about what it is, what it means to, like, go out and have a good night and interact with other people. I think one of the things that we do to sort of like try and help folks feel better is that we know that it's not most folks who are going out and mm-hmm. you know, doing these kinds of, you know, sexual, sexually harmful behaviors. It's a, it's a relative few number of folks in a lot of situations, especially when you get to like the physical violence level. And so for us, you know, part of what we want to help folks realize is that there are aspects of our culture and our nightlife and party spaces that make it easy for you know, perpetrators of folks with bad intentions to blend in, to have camouflage so that it's harder to see them. So what we want to do is sort of remove that camouflage so that we can all feel a bit safer um, so that we can really have the best possible night out. And and that does require a mindset shift like what Will was talking about from just me to everyone in this space because my safety is linked to everyone else's in this space. Yeah, 100%. And you bring up a good point in that I find after... There's been a really public incident connected to a bar. There's a bit of pushback from from the industry that's like, why are we being targeted? Like, what well, it isn't, it doesn't just happen here. And it's like, you're right. Um, sexual violence is pervasive. It it does happen everywhere. However, of course, pre-COVID, like grocery stores aren't jam-packed where it's really hard to see where everyone's hands are. And people generally aren't super turned at the grocery store. Like, so there are certain elements of the environment that could allow it to go undetected or, or happen in, in bigger numbers. Will also made me think about something, a part of our training that it used to get pushed back, but it doesn't really anymore is um, 
really getting bartenders to be on side in that you don't send tables drinks without them having consented. And and we used to get a lot of pushback to that idea, but, uh, you know, framing it as like, if you're creating a space of consent culture, that includes consent to take a round of shots over to people. So, you know, make it your policy that you double check that it's okay. We don't, yeah, we don't get as much resistance to that as we used to. They're resisting other things, but for a little while, I think that that was just such a common place of like, can I buy you ladies a drink? Or like, these this drink is from that guy. And it's kind of like outdated, but it still does happen. So working with Outsmart, you work with bars, you work with venues to kind of be better equipped. And I I know there's no one size fits all, but what would you recommend your average venue do as, as a place to start? I mean, I think there are different leverage points that you can use. Um, in, in New York City, it is uh, required by law that you do these mandatory uh, sexual harassment trainings that are interactive and include bystander intervention. And so everything. jealous. <laughs> and, and, and that's been something that's been really, really good. That's one reason yeah. why folks are, are call, would be calling us a bit more before COVID because these policies weren't like in place you know, or really enforced at all. So yeah. now they have to have a policy, a complaint for it. They have to do a training for that. Um, so I always tell them to get that training. I might push the outsmart training, but New York uh, City also provided a free training that folks can go through if they want to. And then, you know, I might just tell them, you know, call us, <laughs> really. Or, like, I, I ask them about, like, resources for support because most folks aren't going to go to the, the state for, for help, um, especially the folks who are working in this industry. Yeah. So I'll inform them that free and confidential resources, like, or cars that are available to mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm not sure. But my guess, Stacey, is that your train would start with, you know, this is just the beginning of a conversation, which it is. And so I'd say, like, the first thing is have a real conversation with your staff about sexual violence and about other forms of oppression like racism or homophobia or sexism like Those are just the the fact that you can name and admit that your space is not some sort of like utopia where everybody is always going to get along and that sort of thing is the most important thing. And I I understand that some venues may have a hard time getting to that place where they're willing to admit it, um, but it's going to come up eventually. You know, it it is not a, a liability to say, you know, we are not a perfect bar, we are not a perfect club or whatever. And so the only way that you can really begin to find progress as it relates to these issues is to actually start the conversation. I would, within that conversation, I would also say like, what are, what are the expectations and responsibilities that you believe your staff has and that every patron who is, is at your space has? Um, so one thing that we've worked with a lot of folks in New York with is setting standards at the door. Um, so mm-hmm. for every single person who comes in and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the door. It could be if you're like, you're buying a ticket to the, sh- to a show, it could go through that. It could be through social media, but that there is like a clear code of conduct that if we see these behaviors, you are no longer welcome. And then providing resources for people who do see those behaviors, like here's who you can reach out to. Here's who you can call to help you like at that moment. All of those sort of aspects are just like, it's as simple as having a 30-minute conversation with some of your staff, putting up a piece of paper on the door, and then just like letting people know about it. And that's the beginning. And as you have that conversation, as you 
chat with patrons about it, you'll be able to kind of like refine that and get a better sense of, of what is really needed specific to your environment. I love that you call out kind of maybe starting with conversations and implementing one or two things. I have found over the years that sometimes people will attend a workshop and they'll have this awakening and they're like, we have to do all of the things now. And there's lots of momentum. And then they realize how much those have to be resources resourced to be sustained and maybe change the culture and things kind of drop off. And I always say, I would rather, if you're feeling really inspired, pick one or two of the things we talked about in the workshop, master them, and then build out from there. Because I would rather you see see you implement things well, not even perfectly, but well, rather than trying to do all the things and then nothing gets attended to and no one's, you know, checking the complaint email and no one's doing this because the motivation has died down a little bit. There was something else I was going to call out from what you just said. I can't remember it now. Um... Should have took better notes. It will come back to me. <laughs> oh, I this isn't quite it, but I, I did kind of want to, I'm kind of noticing in a lot of what businesses have had to do in order to reopen and be COVID safe. Uh, there's a very strong overlap between measures to communicate to your clientele that your place is, you know, not COVID safe, but you're putting in that work as there is to like prevent sexual violence. And that's definitely something I'm putting in my back pocket for when trainings really start to pick up again is like, I've seen that you can create a policy, put your staff through training, put up posters, put stuff on your website. I know you can do it. So that is no longer going to, to me, uh, be an excuse (laughs) in a post COVID world. Yeah, totally. And I think on an individual level, like we are, COVID has opened up the conversation around like interpersonal consent a little Mm bit. Um, Like we understand, well, I don't want to say we um, as in like the general world, but many people are beginning to understand like the need to ask people if you can take your mask off or like ask if there's hand sanitizer like there are very real lines that can be drawn between how we protect ourselves and each other from covid to how we protect ourselves and each other from violence and so i i think a a huge conversation we've been having as it relates to new york is as we open back up how are we keeping some of that like ethos from from thinking about safety as it relates to a, a viral infection and having those conversations at at a venue and industry neighborhood wide level. Yeah, 100%. Frankie Hutchison from Disc Woman just released um, an article just about new looking forward. Um, Has nightlife learned anything over the past year? And and there's a line in it that really like, really rattled me um, and and nailed what I've been kind of has been stewing in my brain and it says the pandemic has taken away nightlife but intensified its need to profit and that worded like that was like ooh, that's that's the fear that's sitting with me is that when things are allowed to open up again sexual violence has always been hard to get harder not for all venues but harder to get people to take it seriously and is it going to take a backseat to the backseat um with this added pressure to to uh make money 
Sorry, I saw you were going to say something, Eric. I, I am totally there with you. We are totally there with you. And this is something that we were talking about too. You know, as we kept having like our monthly meetings and get togethers, it's like, are we being responsive to what the community needs right now? Even like pushing our stuff mm-hmm. while COVID is happening. And then thinking about our reopening plans. Is this going to be the priority of folks who might be able to replace, you know, workers even faster because everyone's going to be looking for, everyone's already looking for work, right? And time is even going to be more about getting that money that they lost. Um, so our training, which is longer than the New York State's free training, is not going to be at the top of their list. Um, part of what we've been talking about in Outsmart is sort of addressing the conversation with a, a different kind of prevention lens. And so part of what we've done is we started the conversation with the NetLife community through partially our Safer Spaces Committee that we just created. Um, you see those are popping up all over the place as well. I think y'all do have something mm-hmm. like that. Good night out. Yeah. And so this is a conversation that's bringing together folks from all areas of nightlife um, to talk about all areas of safety and inclusion and having conversations about reimagining what New York City nightlife is going to look like, what we want to change, what we are done with um, after COVID. So right now we just had our second meeting and we're identifying focus areas. Um, And then we're going to go through a prioritization process, formation of subcommittees that will be temporary because things will change moment to moment. Because, yeah, now is when we can start taking actions to to have those conversations, to do that advocacy, and to see if we can develop or bring together some resources to support people right, right when we, we come back.
This is Tastemakers. Hey. To, to go back to the safer spaces thing, we are, we're really thinking beyond the mandate of Outsmart. We're partnering with folks all across the city um, to really try and imagine where all the vulnerabilities in nightlife are, the people who work in the, that industry. So it's, it, it goes beyond violence prevention to thinking about how do we support you know, undocumented workers? How do we think about like nightlife performers who who don't have like union representation? There are so many different considerations that are needed to, to really strengthen this industry. And obviously COVID has exposed a lot of those weaknesses and those vulnerabilities. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future, but also, you know, understand that nothing is going to change and nothing is going to be better unless we organize and unless we ask for it and unless we really pressure like public services to support us in this work because it's not just going to transform in and of itself. Yeah. And I think specific to sexual violence, I think that people who maybe don't live in these and operate in these circles kind of think that it goes away when other issues like it goes away during COVID or it's not connected to racial justice, like it just magically it only happens when there's a me to a public me too call out and then we want to talk about it. And so I love what um, you're talking about really brings all of those things together, like sexual violence is connected to food security and is connected to, you know, whether you're documented and like whether you have health care, like all of these things are not separate issues and you can pay attention to all of them at once or, or more than one at once. I did want to talk about maybe an example of a no approach and then we'll shift the last bit of our combo into to, to end on a more positive note. But what's getting a little bit of traction right now is a story out of the UK where a young person, a young woman was out at night and was, was kidnapped and, and taken and, and, um, murdered. And I think because she was out at night, it became, it became kind of grouped into it being a nightlife issue that nightlife has to respond to. Although from everything that's coming out, uh, the victim was not, was not in a nightclub, but the UK has come in with a sweeping response. And I wanted to read this, just this excerpt out of the Guardian, um, and get kind of your reaction to it. So, so the UK government is, of course, as as governments always do when there's something really public, like we need to take this seriously. Um, they're taking immediate steps. And they said among them is to extend pilots of a program in which uniformed and plain clothes officers seek to actively identify predatory suspects or suspicious offenders at night. These measures follow a meeting of the government's crime and justice task force chaired by the prime minister called project vigilante. The program can involve officers attending areas around clubs and bars in plain clothes, along with increased police patrols as people leave at closing time. Is this the solution to sexual violence in nightlife? I don't think so. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I hear this, and the first thing I'm thinking of is like, oh my gosh, the racial profiling that is going to happen. Oh, I am so scared. It's going to ruin businesses. Um, how do like how do you know what this suspicious behavior is? And it's just, and it's like it's not going to be safe for so many communities that are disproportionately impacted by harm who don't want the uh, the police or law enforcement involved. It, it, and I think this command control approach is what a lot of like systems or institutions do when like chaos strikes. You take control of the stabilized position, and then like it'll get back better somehow. But it doesn't really address the underlying conditions that allowed that problem 
to get there. Um, and it doesn't acknowledge their role in, uh, in the violence that's happening in these spaces as well. So I will get off my pedestal. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> An important aside, like footnote to this is that the perpetrator of the violence in this case was an off-duty police officer, which is the kicker in this one. Yeah, what what I really wish, and I hope someday we will see this, that, that something something terrible like this incident happens and the government's response is not to immediately provide this new solution or this new initiative or whatever, but it's just to ask the people yes. on the ground who know these issues best what we should do because if the UK government or the you know being like the city of New York or something like that asked local organizing groups um, women's shelters trans-led organizations they would tell you that we do not need more cops and in fact bringing cops into the situation are only going to increase the chances of predatory behavior happening on I, I mean, the thing that's most disturbing to me about it is is really the plain clothes aspect mm-hmm. um, because if say cops were forced to wear their uniforms in these like theoretical nightlife zones that they would be patrolling at least people would be able to notice them and protect themselves or, or work together to protect themselves but so so much of police violence is, is tied to the power that they have over other people and we've seen this historically in the abuse that sex workers have faced from from cops them being not identifiable only makes it easier for them to to hurt people and to take advantage of people and to threaten people um, and to catch them off guard and and so it's it's a really really difficult conversation and i know when when the three of us last spoke at the drug reform conference you know, we were the ones kind of focused on sexual violence within a broader conversation that was was largely around decriminalization, right? Largely around how do we remove punitive measures from behaviors that are inherent to being human beings. And for us, it's really challenging because we <laughs> we want accountability for people who who harm others. Um, however, we need to find a way to do that in a way that, that does not create more harm in the community. We need to bring partners together. We need to think about restorative justice approaches so that the power dynamics that are ingrained in our societies aren't furthered. Bringing cops into the equation would absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. And it only really helps with like, it helps with response. Like, like they're not, n- no prevention is going to happen here. They're outside. So it's just going to mean that there's potentially a, either like bias coming in and pre-targeting people or they can show up if there is an incident, which is really kind of missing the point. Um, and also a lot of the stuff, I don't know for you folks, but a lot of the stuff that we hear that makes people feel unsafe, it isn't technically criminal, you know, yeah. like the the person kind of creeping out, like giving weird looks in the corner. Like we don't want that person hauled off or interrogated by the police. And and we open all of our workshops with like, what is a good night out to you? Done hundreds of workshops. Absolutely none have said when there are police outside of the bar. Like no one wants cops around at a party or a show or a rave. Like clearly they didn't listen to business owners because I'm not sure that even business owners really right. want cops outside. Yeah. 
And it goes back to like, what are the tools at our disposal for, for preventing violence, right? Like when we, when we go through trainings, we, we look to empower people to use different ways, like forms of bystander intervention, mm -hmm. like general prevention techniques. <laughs> Cops and, and, and the police really have one tool at their disposal and it's violence and, and it's escalating situations. So I, I really don't see a situation where there's like a, a, a potential for like some form of violence and a cop comes in and, and de-escalates that before it gets to the next level. Like it, it's just, I, I can't fathom a situation like that. Mm -hmm. And also knowing that people maybe in nightlife will be potentially on substances or have a personal amount on them, which could put them into a risky situation legal wise or make them not even want to connect with the police because they are they maybe have a small amount on them. So, yeah, complicated. What were you going to say? I disagree with you all. <laughs> I was going to say, like, it's it's like what I was saying before, we're literally allowing them to like to camouflage themselves and then welcoming them into these spaces this this big factor that is the source of so much um like lack of safety that folks feel in spaces yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, with our remaining time let's maybe shift to the proactive and to the positive and and, and in prepping for this conversation you two kind of shared this new kind of perspective and how you're thinking through what is a positive nightlife. And I would love to learn a, a little bit more about that um and also maybe here we like we can walk through like a like an example of bystander intervention that translates well to radio. Will, you want to talk about the consent diamond? The diamond, yes. So a lot of forms of oppression are taught using like a pyramid mm -hmm. where at the top of the pyramid, the most like egregious and like obvious forms of violence are, are present. And then at the bottom, there are more things like modes of communication or or slurs or just like, subconscious attitudes and that sort of thing. So with sexual violence, it, it's no different. Where at the bottom you have like slut shaming and you have just like sexist jokes and that sort of thing. And at the top you have things like assaults and rape and murder. And so what we've kind of been thinking of uh, in the spirit of reimagining what nightlife can be, we've taken that pyramid, we've flipped it upside down. And then on top of it, we've built a another triangle that kind of mirrors that in a positive light. So when it comes to like communication, that would be like consent and asking questions. And then when you really start to get to the top of the pyramid, we're imagining like a, a truly, truly free and safe nightlife experience where everyone can communicate openly and safely. Insecurities and vulnerabilities are like out the door. And it it's, it's just, it's so exciting to imagine what something like that could look like where people could e express themselves so openly and, and everyone would just have a better time. So it, it's kind of like our, one of our guiding principles mm -hmm. of this, like this world, this future that we try to imagine as just like a way of inspiring what our programming and, and what our conversations look like. Yeah. I got to say, I, I absolutely love this and I'm so happy you shared it with me to review. I think a lot about what our responsibility is as sexual violence prevention educators and and you know working in spaces is like one thing I think about a lot even is is it possible to talk about imagining nightlife without sexual violence in a way where we don't even actually 
have to talk about the acts of violence themselves. Like, I know people sometimes really need it to illustrate it. We know that very likely, like, one in four people in the workshop have lived experience with sexual violence. And so to really, we preface so much of our prevention by sharing trauma. And so... I really love this diamond and how it does acknowledge how sexual violence can show up, but it also prioritizes like an end goal or really what we're visioning. And yeah, I absolutely love it. So kudos for, for creating this. Yeah. And before Eric jumps in, because he should certainly take a lot of credit here for these ideas. I, I just, I want to say that our our work is inspired first and foremost for a, a love of these communities and mm-hmm. the and a love from a personal perspective of nightlife and an understanding of how transformative it can be to to express yourself in these different ways to like have fun and build connections with people. And I think one thing that that is also really important to understand as it relates to, to dance music and electronic music, when these communities, in at least in the States, were, were first founded, they were these safe havens from yes. the rest of society, right? Like in, in Chicago and in Detroit, you had queer Black people coming together to party because that is where it could be safe. Now, obviously, you know, it's a global phenomenon and it's been commodified and like all of these sorts of things. But I, I at least I'm personally so inspired by that idea of creating a place where people can truly be themselves and be safe and like find each other and fall in love and all of those things. And and that's why, like at the end of the day, I think a lot of us are in this work because we know we can't reach that without tackling some of, some of the, like the real injustice and violence that are present in these communities. Yeah, thank you. One time, Good Night Out did, uh, we traveled to Detroit to do a workshop and it was just before a movement festival. So there was a lot of underground parties happening and I had the time of my life. Like it just really like reignited, yeah, the passion to do this. Cause I was like, whoa, parties like this still exist. Like a warehouse in Detroit. There was people from all types of backgrounds and bodies. There was like a fully pregnant woman who I was like, oh my God, do we need to be worried that there's going to be a baby born at the rave? Like, like I, my heart honestly was so full and reinvigorated of like why Good Night Out exists. Um, so yeah, thank you. I can, I can chime in on a bystander. Sure. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to bystander intervention, um, at Outsmart, we always tell folks you can be a bystander before, during, and after harm has been committed. And there are a lot of reasons why you might not intervene in the moment. You might freeze. You might be, you know, have some kind of other trauma response. Uh, you might not know what to do. You might not be there. Um, so it's especially important to know that, like, you, you can do stuff after, which is a lot of, something a lot of folks don't think about. Um, but my favorite bystander tip is the check-in. Because you can do it before, during, or after uh, a situation is happening. And the greatest thing about a check-in is it's not not only is it a trauma-informed like strategy used with survivors by asking an open question so they get to decide the direction um, of the conversation, a check-in is also not an accusation, which makes a lot of potential bystanders nervous. What if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. Right? So you might be able to check in and say, hey, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on? If you're the bartender, you can use that opportunity to maybe see if you can see if they're slowing their words. So you can gauge their intoxication. Level. You can find out that maybe there were two employees having a political conversation. I'm going to stay the fuck out of that. Um, or you might find out they're on their first Tinder date. And it's something that you might want to you know, keep an eye on. And at the end of that check in, you, know, you can say something like, well, let me know if you need anything. 
and maybe give some, uh, and you help the person you think is being harmed feel seen, which is a lot of what you know survivors need. And you let the person who you think might be causing the harm know that you have your eye on the yes. So check-ins are my favorite for every person in any venue that I'm going uh, into. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I love the point around like you can use it as like an innocuous way to get more information about the setting or the situation. I guess also it like one thing that we really stress in our training is that bystander intervention looks different based on so many different factors, right? Like how, how I might be able to check in as like a six foot one white male might be very different from like a woman of color, for example, Mm -hmm. and who we're potentially like intervening with also complicates it. So it's, it's important to know that there's not a one size fits all approach to intervening into something that may look sketchy, but there are a multitude of ways that you can do so to, to keep yourself safe, to keep the people who you're concerned about safe. So that there's just a lot of nuance, but I think Eric's absolutely right. Like it's almost like the lowest bar of intervention is just being like, hey, what's up? Like, are you good? <laughs> like, what's going on? Are you here with friends? Like there, there's so, so many different ways that you can just let people know that that you've got their back. This is how I know we're kindred spirits because that's also my favorite when I teach it. I acknowledge that as a person who's socially awkward and shy, like this is my favorite um, intervention as well because you can you can be a little bit goofy. You can make eye contact or not. You just kind of make, keep it casual. And it can also like, as you said, you can also do it after. Like, hey, I, I saw what just happened and that's really fucked up and I'm sorry. Like, can I help you? Like it can, it's a great tool. And, and also, um, acknowledging like a common question we get asked when people book workshops is like who needs to attend like security and we're like literally everyone I want everyone there because if you think about the check-in intervention you're a busser it's literally your job to move around the dance floor picking up empty bottles you are in the best position to do check-ins as you move around so thank you for sharing my favorite technique one thing we will always encourage folks to do is talk with their team uh, talk with their teams about the different intervention styles because it can be so helpful to know who the quote mean bartender is or the person who's good at using humor or when you need to bring in security and what styles they use. Um, so we're always encouraging folks to, um, again, continue the conversation because ours really is just the beginning of this discovery phase of what works for each venue. Yeah, the last thing I, I would love to say just on the barriers to intervention because I think it's really important to name that like, if it's something that you're new to, it's not easy, right? Like it's not easy to call people out. It's not easy to like nudge yourself in the conversation. And, and sometimes like you're wrong. <laughs> and I, I, I say this in trainings, like I cannot think of how many different situations I have checked in on like a couple and they've been like, dude, we've been married for 10 years. Like get out of here. And I'd be like, okay, no problem. Like I, I don't apologize because I don't feel the need to apologize for checking in. But like, it's awkward in that moment, but like, who gives a shit? Like in night, like you forget about the last 30 minutes, like immediately. <laughs> yeah. so it, it, it's like the, like, what's the worst case scenario that's, that's really going to happen. And I understand for some people, like it, it, it could, it, that's why I say like, depending on your identity, it could really turn into something that is, is concerning or, or could be potentially harmful to you. 
but for for many of these tactics, the worst case scenario might be just like an awkward rejection, <laughs> which not that it's part of nightlife as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, there. Uh, I I want to acknowledge something that Kira Lynn, who who they are Canadian now living in Florida, but also I think American, they were doing a lot of sexual violence prevention work out of Ottawa when they were in Canada, and in a workshop once of ours, they generously shared the reminder that. Even if you do it and they're like, no, we're good. Maybe they do think it's good for now. And later in the night, their sense of comfort will exchange. And you've done a really important thing. And that's planted yourself in their psyche of a person who, you know, they may reach out later when they're not managing so well or when the vibes shift. And so even if you get a like, what? No, we're, we're fine. That might shift. And you've labeled yourself as a safe person. And that's really important. Cool. Well, that time whizzed by. So I do have to like nudge us into the wrap up phase, which is such a shame because I love hanging out with you and love talking with you. And I look forward to post COVID times where we can be at events or be on panels together. But yeah, I wanted to give you a chance to promo, like how can folks, how can folks get involved with Outsmart NYC and um, maybe book you or what do you have coming up? Promo, promo, promo. Woo-woo. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at Outsmart NYC. Our Gmail as well, outsmartnyc at gmail.com. All of our services for anyone in New York City are, are free. And the victim, the services for survivors are confidential. We can come, we can train, and you can even call us after the training saying, hey, this fucked up situation just happened. What do I do? Do I handle it right? And we can support you in that way even after the trainings. Uh, Will, you got anything? Yeah, I mean, we're, we just launched a new website. It's been a long time coming. We're pretty excited about it. So outsmartnyc.org is where you can find us online. There are a ton of resources that we're continuing continuing to put together there. And, and like, I would just say, just like have conversations with your friends about it. Like we're all going to be out sooner rather than later. I hope hanging out together at night into the morning and, and I can't wait, but just, you know, just think about it. It, it, it. it doesn't have to be a big, scary, daunting topic. And, and we're here as resources to help facilitate those conversations as best we can. But yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm looking forward to, to dreaming of the new nightlife. Um, I don't want to say the new normal because I don't want to go back to normal. I want to mm-hmm. go back. I want to go to something better and, and, and greater, more beautiful. But until then, yeah, thank you, Stacey, so much for, for bringing us together. Yeah, thank you. How wrong is it? To continue to talk about sexual assault like it's always that stranger lurking in the bushes or always that cartoon caricature of a predatory frat boy and never the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the best friend or the ally or that really sweet guy from class. This is for that really sweet guy from class who might be asking, you know, what about the gray areas? What, what if we're just both really drunk? What, what if she sends mixed messages? What if I'm trying to do the right thing, but I, I read those signals wrong? Have you ever had sex while skydiving? Like, 
Where you talk about consent the same way you talk about wearing a parachute. No gray areas, no assumptions like, I'm pretty sure I'm wearing a parachute. No questions like, I asked her to check my parachute and she didn't say anything, but it was okay last time, so I'm sure it's good this time too. Have you ever had sex in a burning building when smoke and cinder wrapped itself around your neck, but coming was more important to you than going? Have you ever had sex on a life raft in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by sharks? I'm not saying that the water can't be cloudy, I'm just saying we are under no obligation to swim through it. Have you ever not had sex? Just watched a movie. Maybe made out, maybe made plans to get up again later, and then maybe days or weeks later when you're both there and both ready and both smiling and both completely alive in your own bodies and both listening to each other fully and maybe it isn't love maybe it's just sex and that is perfectly okay but love is so much bigger than let's spend our lives together it is also let's spend this moment together as two or more people present electric the opposite of gray the embodiment of human hands eyes Lips. You've been listening to Rave Dad's Diary, the summer edition. Rave Dad's Diary is written, produced, and hosted by Paul Brooks for CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Listen to Season 1 of Rave Dad's Diary on demand via Apple Podcasts and CJSW.com. Rave Dad's Diary will return with new episodes in September. Stay tuned. hot outside. I'm just glad we've got CJSW on 90.9 FM to keep us cool on this hot Calgary day. Can you pass the sunscreen?